How's everyone doing? Good. We did a pray and go yesterday, and we ended up hitting about 200 houses. And I was thinking about it because yesterday we went to the mobile home park, and I was thinking, you know, if we were maybe any normal business, we'd probably choose certain areas to target and maybe certain areas to not target, right? Depending on whatever our business is, whatever thing we're trying to sell or whatever service we're wanting people to hire us for. But the great thing about the gospel is it's for everyone, right? And prayer is for everyone, right? So we're going to go to the nice neighborhoods, the not so nice, the rough ones, the great ones. Yesterday, the Lord took us to the mobile home park. Um, we hit every single one of those in there, which was about 200. And to date, we've hit uh, just a, a little bit over 2,300 houses, which is uh, totals up to, when we crunch all the numbers for time, 4,635 minutes of outreach and prayer. That's pretty cool. Uh, someone was asking me the other day, you know, um, what if the Saturday when we're going doesn't work? What can I do? Could I make my own pray and go day? And the answer is yes, absolutely. So if you want to come up, we can give you a, a neighborhood to target. And some people have already done that. So if you want to do that, we can even send an email out. Hey, some people are going on this day at this time. I think some people have spring break this week or next week. So that might be an opportunity for some of the moms and the kids to do it. And we can, we can get you in the right spot. It's relatively easy little setup. We get you the hangers. We get you a little map. And you can go and, um, and do what the Lord wants you to do with praying and going. So I encourage you to do that as well. Also, you can hit your own neighborhood. Whether you live within uh, on, that, on the area of that map back there or not, um, ask us about that too. Hit your own neighborhood and put door hangers on there. That might be a good time to write a little note on it. Um, invite them to church. And uh, so we, 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 we have about a total of, I think, uh, 5,000 door hangers. So we've used about half of them. We still have about half to go if you look at the map. So we're making progress. Uh, God is using it. We had some uh, good conversations yesterday with the different people that we ran into. And, um, and so pray, you know, the Lord can use all sorts of things, even something as simple as a door hanger, right? All right, let's pray. Father. Thank you so much for who you are. God, I pray you'd use those door hangers, the 200 or so that we put, that it'd be a blessing to those people to know that they're being prayed for, God. Maybe they don't know you. Many of them probably don't. Uh, God, I pray that it would stir within them. Uh, why is a church praying for me? Why does a church care about uh, my mobile home park that they'd come out here on a Saturday to put it on my door? And it would stir them to go to our website to see the gospel Lord, I pray it's stirred in them to visit our church. Lord, we want to be a church uh, that not just talks about who you are to ourselves, that not just thinks about the gospel, but puts feet to action, Lord, and that we actually take it out and walk it out and speak it out, Lord. So we ask that you would do that. You'd use something like Pray and Go that we're using as a tool for outreach. And Lord, we pray even for the outreach here, but we also pray for the outreach afar as you're even having the Belize meeting today, God, that you would bless that. You'd prepare the hearts of the Belizeans that we're going to be ministering to this summer. We thank you for Pastor Smith and his church, Elohim Community Church, for their faithfulness to the gospel. We pray you'd continue to strengthen them. 
Lord, we thank you for the privilege of partnering with them and ask that it would be a partnership that continues to grow, that it continues to flourish, Lord, and that you'd be glorified uh, this summer as we go down there. We ask God as well that our hearts would be set on your word today to hear from you exactly what you want us to hear. We acknowledge that you are over this church and acknowledge that you are here now. We thank you for that. We thank you for your mercy and grace. Amen. All right, so we've been looking at the trio of virtue the last few weeks. What was the first one that we looked at? Faith. All right. What, what was the, the next one that we looked at? Love, right? What are we going to look at today? Hope. Okay. So we've looked at faith. We've looked at love. Today we're going to look at hope. Um, listen, hope is important to us, uh, and we need to have it. But here's the thing. It needs to be the right kind of hope. The right kind of hope. All right, think about that for a second. Because we're going to look at the different types of hope. But there's, uh, I'd say, worldly hopes. And then there's biblical hope. Um, Quite a few years ago, a submarine was rammed by a ship off the coast of Massachusetts. Sank immediately. Much of the crew died. But the remaining crew was trapped underneath the water on the bottom of the ocean, basically in in a prison of death. And every effort was made to rescue the crew. But all efforts ultimately failed. And near the end of the ordeal, as they were sending divers down, and the weather wasn't allowing to do it, and they had tried all sorts of different things with grappling hooks and everything. The weather was horrible. They couldn't hardly reach them. Near the end of the ordeal, a deep-sea diver uh, got down to the hull of the ship, and he thought he heard tapping on the hull. So he placed his helmet up against the side of the vessel. He realized it was Morse code. And what they were uh, tapping out was repeatedly the same question. They were tapping out, is there any hope? Over and over, is there any hope? And for them, there wasn't hope. Not in this lifetime. They ended up perishing. But we have hope, regardless of whatever situation we're in, that God will see us to his throne. So the biblical concept of hope is misunderstood. Why is it so important? Why do we need to have it? Because it's something that we see clearly in the scriptures as part of this trio of virtue. Hope. Uh, there's a story in, of uh, some Jews in Auschwitz in the concentration camp. And <clears throat> this little boy was aghast when one of the Jewish festivals came and the dad used a little pad of butter uh, to light the lamp to signify that particular um, Jewish festival, Hanukkah. And he talked to his, his uh, the son talked to his dad. He's like, dad, why, why would, I mean, we're starving to death. Why would you take that butter? And he said, son, uh, we've learned how to survive three weeks without food. If we don't have hope, we won't survive three minutes. And so it was reminding his son of the, of the principles of, of who God was and to remain hopeful even in the worst of circumstances that God was still faithful. So we use the word hope, uh, I'd say in an earthly or worldly way, probably in three different ways. The first is this, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down. 
Hope is the desire for something good in the future. Hope is the desire for something good in the future. Listen to this example. I hope my airplane flight lands on time so I can see my kid's baseball game. Right? In other words, I desire for my flight to land on time so that I can experience this good thing, namely seeing my kid's baseball game. So hope is the desire for something good in the future. Second, hope is the good thing in the future that we are desiring. My hope is that Nathan will arrive safely. In other words, Nathan's safe arrival is the object of my hope. Okay, Hope is the good thing in the future that we are desiring. Third, hope is the reason why our hope might indeed come to pass. Think about what Princess Leia says. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Only hope for what? Saving the galaxy from the evil galactic empire. No pressure, Obi-Wan. Okay. In other words, Obi-Wan is the reason that Princess Leia may achieve the future good that she desires to rescue the galaxy from the evil galactic empire. He is the hope. So there's three senses, a desire for something good in the future, the thing in the future that we desire, and the basis or reason for thinking that our desire may indeed be fulfilled. Now, when the Bible talks about hope, actually you'll see some of those definitions used. Paul will talk about, oh, I hope to see you soon, right? Now, he can't guarantee that's going to happen. There's some uncertainty there. But when we talk about biblical hope, and we talk about what it is to hope in Christ, when we start talking about the theological things, not just uh, going about hoping to do this or hoping to do that, when we talk about what it looks like in the scriptures to talk about a biblical hope, it's, 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 it's really the opposite of the things we've just discussed. How is it the opposite? Because today when we use the word hope, all those things express uncertainty. So think about that. I hope my airplane flight lands on time so I can see my kid's baseball game. That means I don't have certainty that my flight will land, you know, right? I only desire that it does. My hope is is that Nathan will arrive safely. Means I don't know if he will or not. That's my desire, right? And then the Star Wars one, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope, means Obi-Wan would bring her to her desired goal, but she can't be sure Obi-Wan will even respond, right? And if he can come through for her. All those things express uncertainty. Biblical hope is the exact opposite. Biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. Here's what... Dr. Piper said, I'm indebted to him for some of these thoughts. Biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it to happen. And it not only expects it to happen, it is confident that it will happen. So I want to look at hope today uh, first and then look a little bit at steadfastness. Hope is confident. Look at Romans chapter 4. You're actually going to see two 
examples of more of an earthly hope and a biblical hope in the very same verse. This is talking about Abraham. We'll start in verse 13. For the promise of Abraham and his offspring, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Romans 4. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And then notice what he says in verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Right? In hope, that's the biblical hope. Just think about that for a second. He believed against hope. Like, think about that. Like, Abraham's going to have a kid. He's going to be the father of many nations. There's no hope for that. There's a lot of uncertainty there from a worldly, earthly perspective. No hope. But with biblical hope, with the promise of God, there is a confidence. And not only just a confidence, there's a confident expectation that what God has said will happen. So that's the in hope. In this confident expectation, he believed against this earthly uncertainty. That he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Look down at verse 21. It kind of fills it in. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This confident expectation. Abraham was convinced, even though all earthly th- things said, what, what? You're kidding me. Why would you even think that? Why? Because God said it. So I believe it. So that's the th- first thing. Hope is confidence. The other thing, my point number two, is hope is forward-looking. Listen, biblical hope is never based on what is possible with man. Praise the Lord. It's based on what God promises will come to pass. So it looks forward to what God will do. It looks forward. And it believes God will actually do it. God said it. And since he said it, he's going to do it. And that's good enough for me. Look at Colossians chapter 1. He starts in verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. What's the hope of the gospel? That, that God actually does redeem man. 
that he has come down for us. That he saves us, that he takes the blood of his son to cover our sins. That's not just some theoretical thing. That is physical, actual, factual information that when we receive it as truth and really trust in it, a change happens. God redeems us. The hope of the gospel is that God will be faithful to his promise to redeem his people. That God, all your suffering, all your troubles... It's just, it's just, just for a moment, just for a moment, because God will stay true to what he has promised each one of us here, that he will redeem us. That's the hope of the gospel. My third point, hope is certain, even though it lies in the future. Hope is certain, even though it lies in the future. Look at first Thessalonians chapter five. Here, Paul is, is rattling off a number of exhortations to his people as he's wrapping up the letter. He starts in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice what he says in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So it's forward-looking. He will surely do. Now, he surely has done it, right? And he surely is doing it, but he surely will do it. Every single thing that God has promised to pass will come to pass. A biblical hope realizes that, acknowledges that, and trusts in those facts from God himself. So it looks forward. You don't set your heart on the here and now. You don't set your heart on earthly things or worldly things. You set it on what God has prepared for you in the future. If you set your, your hope on, on, on stuff now, I mean, that's depressing. It really is. Okay? New cars, new houses, new whatever. I mean, I mean, that can fulfill you for a little bit. But it gets old quick. We get old quick. It's going to pass. All these things are going to pass. You set your hope on things now, you're just going to be disappointed. You set your hope on the eternal things, on the future things that God has promised, you're going to be excited. Look at 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God find their what? Yes. Yes, in him. All the promises of God. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Amen? Amen. So God, I mean, can you think of a single promise that God has said yes to, and then he changed his mind and said no to? No. You think of a single promise God has, has failed on? No. All the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. Look what he says because of that a couple chapters later in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He's talking and comparing the different different covenants, the old covenant of Moses, the new covenant of the Spirit. He says, verse 8, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation talking about the Old Testament, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all. 
because of the glory that surpasses it. I mean, think about, just for a second, friends, the gloriousness of the Old Testament and all the works that God did and how he started the rescue plan all the way in Genesis. I mean, it is glorious, right? But he is saying here, what once had, had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. You take the Old Testament and then you compare it with the New Testament, though, and you're like, I mean, your mouth should just be wide open. Because, like, now you see the fulfillment in it. And all the Old Testament, the greatest of the prophets, add all the prophets up together, it pales to the greatest prophet of all, Jesus. Everything that happened in the Old Testament pales in comparison to what Christ did for us. Doesn't come anywhere close to matching it. That God himself would come here and live on this earth and, and, and die for you. Like, I mean, that's, that's like your, you know, your mind should be blown, right? Like, what greater love, right, has man than this that he should lay down his life? But what greater love has God than this that he should lay down his own life? Because that's what he did for you. That's amazing. So he says, <clears throat> he keeps on, uh, because of the glory that surpasses it, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And then notice what he says, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. A hope of what? That these things are certain. That the old is passing, that the new has come. That God is going to sustain them. That God is going to sustain you. That he will see you through to the end. That regardless of the trials and the afflictions, God is there with you. You can take hope in that. Because of that, whatever situation you're dealing with, whatever circumstance you're facing, you can do it with boldness. Here, Paul, he's being put into all these sorts of different certain, certain situations, right? What happens? Boldness. He can be bold. Not because he's like some great orator. A lot of people think maybe he really wasn't. He was a great writer, that's for sure. Why? Because he takes confidence not in himself. Not in himself. Right? You, you don't have to be great with words to save people, to lead people to know Jesus. If you take confidence in yourself, I mean, that's game over. All right? Some of you, if you're honest, me included, like we've tried to take confidence in ourselves. It's, it's an epic fail. It's not pretty. It's a work of the flesh. You take confidence in Christ... He'll turn your mumbled, feeble, bumbling words and use them for his glory. And he'll save some people in the process. So we want to do that. Hope is certain, even though it lies in the future. The last thing, hope is Christ-focused. Look back at Colossians chapter 1. Here's what Paul says, starting in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Like Jesus, 
Our hope is, is Christ-focused. Jesus, ultimately, he is the hope of glory. He's like the glorious hope, right? Like our hope is set on him. So we have to have a Christ-focused hope. If it's focused on anything else but Jesus, it's a misplaced hope. So whatever you're doing, whatever you're thinking, whatever you're trying to accomplish, if it doesn't have Christ there, it's not going to be good. You have to have Christ. It has to be focused on him. This is what Paul says later in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Look there. The very first verse of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our what? Our hope. Our hope. Friends, is Christ your hope? Like, is he your hope? Because you're going to put your hope in different things, you're going to end up sorely disappointed. You put it in Christ, you'll never be disappointed. There's a, a book that was written, man, hundreds of years ago. Dante's Inferno. Any of you heard of it? It's like an allegory of hell. And there's one part, a famous part, where it says that the sign over hell as people are entering it, it reads, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. And friends, that, that really is really the one place where there is no hope. Hell itself. There is no chance for redemption. There is no chance for turning around. The very presence of God and his fullness of love, mercy, joy, grace, peace is absent. But that is the only place. Even here on this earth, we have an abundance of hope in Christ. So that's the idea of hope, the biblical concept of hope. But here in 1 Thessalonians, in verse 3, it says we have the steadfastness of hope. The steadfastness. Uh, the NIV says endurance. King James says patience. The idea of steadfastness is being anchored, standing firm, being unmovable. So this type of hope encourages endurance. It inspires one to stand firm. So we would say it like this, a steadfastness, it says of hope, we could say a steadfastness inspired by hope. Why are you going to stand firm? Why aren't you going to move? Why are you going to be resolute and trust in the Lord and seeking after him and staying strong in your convictions? Because the biblical hope has inspired you. You got, you got Christ coming. He's coming back here. You're going to heaven someday. And every one of us at some point is going to be lying on some type of deathbed, right? And what's going to be the hope at that point for you? What's it going to be? Because the steadfastness helps us to endure. That steadfastness of hope, that hope that we have, helps us make it through the next day and the next day and the next day. We're struggling. It's tough. And we're like, man, everything, I mean, the, 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 the ship looks like it's sinking. But you got your anchor in Christ. You're anchored in him. That is your hope. So you can make it to that next day. You can press on. You can endure. You can stand firm. We need this hope when we're discouraged, when we're downtrodden and we're afflicted. What do you do? You remain strong. You remain resolute. Look at what 2 Corinthians says in chapter 4. 
Paul has every reason with what he's about to describe to lose hope, but you can see that he doesn't. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. What keeps them going? Biblical hope. That God is a redeemer. That he's the rescuer. That he's going to see them through to the end. Even if that end is that very night. He'll see them through to that. Same thing he says in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, and we labor working with our own hands. Right? And he goes on. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. Why? Like, why? When you're persecuted. Like, why endure Because of what Christ has already done for them. Because of what Christ promises for them, they endure. So we have a steadfastness of hope when we're discouraged, when we're downtrodden, when we're afflicted. We have a steadfastness of hope when we're unsure of life's circumstances. Maybe some of you have some uncertainty now. Look at 1 Thessalonians 3. Paul himself expresses some uncertainty. He says in verse 1, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we send Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. What's going on? They hadn't heard back from the Thessalonians in a bit, so what do they do? They send Timothy to find out what's going on, to encourage them. We send Timothy, our brother, verse 3, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So what does he do? He sends Timothy to find out what's going on with him. He was concerned that they had fallen away. Very realistic. He'd only been there for a few weeks to establish the church, right? He loves them and he cares for them. He's already developed relationships with them. But even in the midst of this uncertainty, and even as he's sending Timothy, it's not like he could just send him down the street and get an answer the next day, right? He got a little voyage to take. He's got to wait for him to come back. But there's a steadfastness of hope. What? I mean, Paul keeps writing the letter to him. He keeps instructing him, right? The letter itself is evidence that he has hope that God has established them and will take them to the end. Think about that. That's why we also have a second Thessalonians. Third, there's a steadfastness of hope when we want to give up. God comes and upholds us. He stands by us. He nurtures us. And he doesn't give up on us. Listen, you might give up on God. I might give up on God. But guess what? He doesn't give up on his children. He does not give up. If you're one of his, he doesn't give up on you. He never has, and he never will. The steadfastness of hope when we want to give up. We have a hope that God is going to be there even when we fail. Even when we mess up. Like, he is faithful to walk with us through that. He's walking with us. Sometimes maybe we don't even want him walking with us. He's faithful to walk with us. He loves us that much. 
Friends, what's, what is foundational for these three things, faith, hope, and love? Like, how do, we, how do we inculcate them? Well, it's back to Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, we have a confident expectation of our future glory because of what Christ has done. And here's my question. Have you submitted to the Lord your entire life? Every part of it. Like, you want, we want Christ as Lord, right? We want salvation. We want to go to heaven. We want to talk about, like, a relationship with him. Which, those are great things. But, but is he Lord of your life? Like, is, are, have you submitted to him? Are you fully consecrated to him? Because, listen, Christ is the head over this church. Right? I mean, is he the head over this church? He's the head over this church, right? Do you guys acknowledge that? I mean, do you guys believe that? Okay, I mean, it's easy to say when we're talking about this church, because some of you might just be thinking about this physical building. But even if we're just talking about us as believers, as members of this church, like, that's easy, I think, to say, but he's, he's over you. That, that's the tough part, I think. But, oh, yeah, he's over my church. Yep, yep, definitely over my church, and I'm a part of that church. But will we acknowledge and truly believe that he's over us? And then order our life accordingly. Because he's over you, and he's over your children, and he's over your spouse, and he's over your family, and he's over your schooling, and he's over your work. Like, so why fret? Why fret? Why be dismayed? If he's over every single possible thing, whether you admit it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, really doesn't depend on you, right? He's over it. And he's over you. And he's got you. He's got each one of you. He's got me. So why not trust him in those situations? Why not bend our will to his will. Okay, I can guarantee you he's got a much better will than you got, than I got. So let's bend it to him. Friends, you, you want to know what distinguishes the church from the world? I mean, have you ever thought about that? What distinguishes the church from the world? The church is a community which is distinguished by faith, hope, and love. Go out there and try to find some biblical hope, hope in someone that's not a believer. Go out there and try to find some faith that's actually doing something, a real faith. You ain't going to find it. What about hope? A lot of hopelessness out there. If people are hoping in anything, they're hoping in themselves and in their possessions. What distinguishes the church is a true faith, a true love, and a true hope. So can you have have faith, hope, and love and, and go drink and access on the weekends? I'd say no. There's no love in doing that. I mean, it it shows your brother hopeless. You show that your faith is in a bottle and not in God. And can you have faith, hope, and love and go look at porn? I'd say no. I mean, porn is the very opposite of love. Takes women, objectifies them. You're putting more hope on the image on the screen than anything. Your faith is seen to be something that is weak and needs strengthening. Can you have faith, hope, and love and just, just live your life as you please without much of a concern? And how oh, you go to church and how oh, you flip open your Bible occasionally. And, oh, you, you listen to Joy FM, so that counts too. <clears throat> no, I'd say no, right? 
Like God wants us submitted completely to him. Fully. Now I want you to notice, like these, these qualities, they can seem abstract. Faith, like can you hold faith? No. Hope, can you grab it? No. Love, can you, can you pull it out of your back pocket? No. They're abstract qualities. But listen, each one of them has tangible results. What does that mean? If a person has a true faith, you can see it. If a person has a biblical love, you can see that person's love. If a person has a biblical hope, you can see it. Faith, as we've been talking about, faith works. It works. What does love do? It labors. And what does hope do? It endures. It is steadfast. Now, if you're just sitting in your chair at home, sipping on whatever you sip on, <clears throat> and you're like, oh, I, I love my neighbor. I just, oh, I just love my neighbor. You know, Frank, oh, he's just such an awesome neighbor. I just love him. But you never do anything about it. Friends, that's not love. It's not love. You know what that's called? It's called sentimentalism. You just, you just got nice little feelings bubbling up in your heart. You got nice little sentimentality there. It prompts you to zero action. That's not love. Because biblical love acts. And the same is true for faith and hope. Yesterday, Trent and Ethan were outside playing. And uh, next door neighbor was, has a ride lawnmower. And he was cutting his lawn. And on his, he was, you know, doing his thing. And on the driveway was, was a newspaper. And he didn't see it. So he runs over this. He doesn't see that he had run over it even. So it's just, it's just like paper confetti just being blown up into the air, large chunks everywhere. Trent and Ethan are laughing <laughs> because they're seeing this happen. It's windy. <clears throat> and finally, he realizes that he stops the lawnmower, right? And just, I mean, it had literally spread to like four different houses in their yards and everything. What'd they do after they stopped laughing? <laughs> They go over and they help him gather it up. All these different yards. I mean, is it, is it really incumbent upon you know uh, a ten and a twelve year old to do that? Well, I'd say if they're believers, yes. Actually, I'd say that yeah, God does have a calling even on the young, right? And so, what did they do? They loved their neighbor. Now they could have just stayed where they were and just thought, man, that, that's that's horrible that that happened. To our neighbor. That's just, I just feel so bad for him, man. I hope he can collect that all up. He's kind of slow, too, so it might take him a while. But no, right? Like, they were trying to love their neighbor as themselves. So that love prompted them to action. John Calvin called this trio of virtue, faith, hope, and love. He called it a brief definition of true Christianity. And one commentator put it like this in talking about faith, hope, and love. He said, faith rests on the past. Right? Like what Christ has done for us. Love works in the present. So we love people, so we're, we're acting on that love. 
Hope, he said, looks to the future. Hope looks to the future. And if, if you truly have these character traits, they're going to be evident. It will be seen as it works itself out in your life. There will be tangible results. Has your faith grown since your salvation? I hope so, right? Since 10 years ago? I hope so. Since last year? I hope so. Has your love for others grown from day one of you getting saved? What about from five years ago? What about since last year? And where's your hope placed? Like I, when I first got saved, I heard people talking about like the hope of heaven and how excited they were to go and they just couldn't wait to get there. And I was almost like, man, I think these people got some issues or something like that. Like, you know, they still got some lives to live. <clears throat> but then I started to realize like you start to get a glimpse of heaven and the hope of glory and you start to long for that more. And it becomes more and more realized truth. It's not any more true. You just start to realize how true it really is. And so you start to long more and more. You start to have that biblical hope. And it encourages you to press on. I'm going to have the team come up as I'm, as I'm wrapping up here. Let's take, friends, faith, hope, and love. And let's grow in them. And let's show it to others in how we live. Brothers, sisters, I believe some of us have lost hope. We have lost a biblical hope. And I want to encourage you, as Chris starts playing, I want to encourage you, like, let's take a moment and let's confess that to the Lord. Because ultimately, losing hope, that's a faith issue. It's a statement of faith. That's okay if we find ourselves there, but let's not get stuck there. Okay? I've been at places where I've been without hope, but you don't want to remain stuck there. You find people and they're hopeless, they're stuck there. God doesn't want you stuck there. He wants you with hope. Not about today, but about the future. What he's going to do for you and what he has already done for you. So just close your eyes right now as I'm speaking. If that's you, if, if your hope has wavered a bit, you're struggling with a biblical hope, just ask him to renew you now. Confess it to the Lord. It is sin. So let's acknowledge that. And then ask him to renew you. Ask him to restore your hope in Christ. Let him know that you need him. That you really need him. And to restore to you a biblical hope of what he has for you of what he wants for you, of what he has in store for you and has promised to you and will bring to pass, guaranteed. Let's pray. Father, I pray people right now would be talking with you, maybe not even hearing my words, but communing with you. And I do ask, Lord, for anyone here who's lost hope, who's struggling with hope. Let them get a clear picture of you. That you're not going anywhere. That you are there for them. You'll walk with them. You'll carry them if need be. 
And that steadfastness, Lord, comes from who you are. You strengthen us to stand. You strengthen us to endure. You strengthen us to make it to the next day and the next day and the next day. So give us that biblical hope, a confident expectation. There's no uncertainty, God. There's a certainty that you've got it. Whatever it is, you've got it. You're taking care of it. We can trust you. It might not be pretty all the way, but you've got it. And for us to endure on. For the hope of glory, Jesus Christ. Amen.